We're going to be in James chapter 3 this morning as we continue our study there. If you've been with us at all, then you know that we have been uh, studying this letter together, trying to glean some understanding from it. It's a very practical and a helpful book, and I'm excited to see what it has to say to us this morning as we read James chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. Uh, prepare yourself. This is a difficult text. It's easy to understand. It, it is. It, it will convict your heart. But before we read these verses, let's pray together. Oh, Lord God, we pray simply now that you would open our eyes and that as we turn to your word from it, you would give us life. God, in it that we would find Jesus. Lord, so teach us from it today to trust in him. In his name we pray. Amen. Okay, James 3, verses 1 through 12. It says, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with great, greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brother, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Okay, so a, a text this morning, a passage where James is going to move into a discussion, into a teaching section about the power of the tongue, about our inability to tame the tongue, about the dangers of the tongue. And by the tongue, uh, he does not mean the physical tongue in so much as it represents the words that we speak. And so this is, a, this is a section where he is teaching about the importance of our words, the importance of the language that we use. And if you've been with us for any time, then you may be wondering how in the world uh, you move so abruptly from a discussion on faith and works, this sort of theological treatise that if you were with us last week you saw where he so carefully argues that uh, faith without works is dead. What it, how, how do you then move to, it seems a bit abrupt, move into this discussion about teachers and language and the power of the words that we have. But it, it really does make sense because if you go all the way back to James chapter 1 and you consider chapter 1 and chapter 2, what you find is that James began in chapter 1 by speaking more generally uh, about the reality that there are, are true Christians and false Christians and how we can distinguish between the two. And so in chapter 1, he speaks in the most sort of general terms that true Christians are characterized by those, he says first, who trust God in the midst of their trials, who find 
great solace and peace and joy in God's providence and plan in the midst of their difficulties and struggles. He goes on in chapter 1 to say that true Christians are those that don't only hear the word of God as it's preached and sit under it and listen to it, but that they hear it in such a way so that it brings about action. That true Christians are those whose lives are characterized by living out the word of God that they hear, the faith that they proclaim to have. Those whose faith is proven or vindicated in the lives that they lead. And so then in chapter 2, which we just finished last week, he is going to move to speak a bit more specifically. Um, He's going to speak more specifically about what the distinctions are and what these true and false Christians look like. And so then he moves to the specific sin in the beginning of chapter 2, to the sin of partiality. The true Christians are those that do not show partiality based on external uh, external things in people's lives. We don't, we don't show honor to the rich man and despise the broken and the poor. Uh, that true Christians are those because of their understanding of the gospel and that it is only for the broken and that they see their own desperation and need for grace. They are willing to extend that grace equally to all men. And then he concludes that section Uh, with what we saw last time with this careful articulation about the relationship then between faith and works. And so he has been uh, building up an argument in a general sense and then in a more specific sense about the reality that our lives, our obediences, the things that we do, they either show us to be genuine believers in the Lord Jesus Christ and true Christians according to the scriptures or our lives And lack of obedience expose us to be hypocrites and those who claim to have a faith that is not saving. So the debate for James is not whether or not faith saves. The debate is whether or not one possesses saving faith. And that that was the discussion that we had last time. So it makes sense then to move into a discussion about the language that we use. Why? Well, because isn't our language, aren't our words one of the clearest and easiest ways to understand what is inside of our hearts. It's not a work that we do per se. It's not something that we go do or some obedience that we do physically, but it is a work in the sense that our words show what is on the inside. I mean, if you think about even Jesus's own teaching in Matthew chapter 12, what did he ask? How can you being evil speak good things? Why? Because out of the abundance of the heart, your mouth speaks. In other words, you can't say and you can't do, you can't have language that exhibits anything other than what's on the inside, for it is out of the abundance of what's in here that is on the outside. Then that that discussion continues and picks back up again in Matthew 15 and verse 18. He tells them, but those things which proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and they are which defile a man. All right, so that it is it is a it is a clear and easy test, if you will. It's a way for us to glean understanding about the, the, the state of our hearts to simply look at the language that we use and the way that we speak to one another and the way that we talk to others. It is, it is a work that proves our faith in the same sense that these other things that he's been talking about. Friends, what he's saying is that you can't claim to love Jesus and have language that is profane and sinful. 
And that may be odd to you to think, well, what do you mean by sinful language? I'm going to talk about that in just a moment. But let me show you one other thing. It shouldn't be peculiar to us that James moves abruptly, or so it may seem, into this discussion about the taming of the tongue and the words that we use. Go back to chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. As he was speaking in the most general terms about the distinctions between true Christians and false Christians, he comes to the conclusion of that general section, and look at verse 26, what does he say? In conclusion, he brings up three particular areas that he's going to deal with in the rest of the letter. Okay, so he's setting the stage for what he's going to say in the remaining parts of the letter. Verse 26, if anyone thinks he is religious, in other words, if, if, he, if he thinks he is religious, whether or not he is a true Christian, but look, if he thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, he deceives his heart and his religion is worthless. So he's already given us that's one area. Okay, then look at verse 27. He goes on to say that religion that is pure and undefiled before God is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, right, to not show partiality. He's already dealt with that in chapter 2. And then the third is to keep oneself unstained from the world. So the holiness that is commanded by God for his people. So those are going to be the three themes then, or the three areas that James is going to use to substantiate and to build up his argument that true Christians live lives of obedience in a certain fashion. And he's going to point to those three areas to help us make the distinction for ourselves and for the church at large, for men in the world, for sinners, to help us make the distinction between who are true Christians and who are not. Are you a true Christian or are you not? Right? He's giving us these three areas. And so in chapter 2, he dealt with the second one, the partiality, visiting orphans and widows, not showing partiality, but serving the least of these. And then in chapter 3 now, he's turning to what is the first of the, I guess, the sections that he gave us, that if any man thinks his religion, thinks that he is religious, but he does not bridle his tongue, he deceives his heart and his religion is worthless. That's what he's dealing with in chapter 3. So he's told us he was going to talk about this. So it should be no surprise that we uh, find him moving to a discussion about this and him using the issue of the tongue to substantiate his theological argument that our life proves the state of our heart. Now, back to the discussion of what do we mean by sinful language. Has, have you ever thought, I mean, as, as we begin and before I try to exposit and exegete this text for you exactly and particularly, have you ever even considered that your speech could be sinful? That, that you're that your speech could maybe even go further than just being sinful, that your words and that your language could reveal something substantial about the state of your heart. What, do, what, are the, what is your mouth, uh, what, what do people think about you based on the language that you have and the words that you say? And let me, let me make a careful distinction or a clarification for you here. When I say the language that you use, I'm not talking about culturally dictated profanity. Okay, so, so let me be very clear. I'm not just talking about, you know, cuss words. Um, that doesn't even begin to scratch the surface of what James is arguing here. I mean, let's face it. What's a four-letter word in the English language is a grouping of letters that in another language means absolutely nothing. And so those words are only as vile as they are in our cultural context. Now, listen, I'm not building an argument for you so that you can use them. What I'm trying to help you see is that what I mean by what does your language say about your life, I don't mean how many four-letter words do you use in a day. What I mean is questions like this. Are your words full of anger? 
Or do they show grace to people? Does your language profane God's name and his work and his kingdom? Or does it seek to build it up and edify his people and bring the gospel to the lost? Are you a liar? Are you a gossip? In your language, are you participating in those things? Do you speak words that are true and right? Or do you speak words that are wrong and negative? Are you overly critical in your speech, regardless of the situation? Are your words slanderous? Are your words hurtful? Or do they build up and speak truth and glory? Are they sharp and spiteful? You know, is your language coarse or crude? Is your language disrespectful and demeaning to other people? Putting them down? Or do we come to those that we speak the truth to and speak the truth in love? Do you you see the difference? I'm not just talking about how many four-letter words you use or don't use in a day or what you say when you stub your toe on a chair around the house. That's to miss the point of the text altogether. The question is... What does the language and the words and the type of things that come from your mouth say about your heart? And friends, he begins at a very serious place in chapter 3, verse 1 here in this letter. Look at what he says. Point number one, he calls us to remember, to realize in light of this truth about language, that we will give an account for our words. Friends, you need to hear that this morning. Let me rephrase that. Friends, we need to hear that this morning. I have to tell you, this is not where I excel. Is in gracious, helpful, edifying language. So if you're feeling beat down already, just join the club. Friends, we need to remember that we're going to give an account for the things that we say. Look at at where he begins the discussion. Chapter 3, verse 1. Not many of you should become teachers. For you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Now, isn't this interesting? I mean, here we are, a church that's longing to have a Sunday school program, desperately in need of teachers. And James is standing up saying, don't all of you volunteer. Not many of you should be teachers. Right? It seems to be sort of counterproductive. But it's because there is a great significance to the work of teaching. Teaching is fundamentally a work with words. It is fundamentally a work with language. Teachers are those who have a special, uh, a special responsibility to bring language to bear in true and loving and gracious ways. They're they called to give difficult realities, to, to give gracious realities. They are called to speak the truth of Scripture and to do it in a way that is pleasing to God. And so he is picking, he is picking a, a, a topic here, a, a job, if you will, that is especially concerned with words on a regular basis. And so there is an especial danger for teachers because they work in a special way with language and with words to fall especially short of what he is calling them to. And, and, and he goes on to say that the reason we should not all desire to be teachers, I mean, it's in their day, listen, Unlike our day, preachers and teachers were those that had a real place of social standing. Okay, They were regarded in the highest esteem in their culture. 
And, and so to some degree, people longed to be teachers and preachers and rabbis in their communities because it made them a somebody. So, so there is some teaching here about humility, right? That, that, that you should not long to be teachers. You should not have this desire for men to just be putting you up on a pedestal. But the reason you should not desire it, what does he say? Why? Because you will be judged with greater strictness. Greater strictness on what basis? On the words that you have spoken. Friends, on the things that you have taught. Whether or not you have led people in truth, whether or not you have built them up in the gospel, whether or not your words have led them to Christ, or whether or not your language and your words and the way you have spoken to them has pressed them far from him. And, and so James says, do not desire to be a teacher, to work especially with words because of the danger that language presents for sinners. He says, he says don't desire to be a teacher a teacher of words, that is of God's word, of spiritual truth, because of the danger of words and because you will be judged with greater strictness. I read this and I do wonder just practically uh, what this says about our current methodology in so many, so many of our churches about how we find teachers and preachers and, and what sort of requirements and qualifications there are for men to become preachers and teachers. It, it seems as though with the volunteer method, you know, and with anybody that will raise their hand and who loves Jesus and is willing to serve, that, that we think that they should be teaching and that they should be serving. And James is standing up and saying, friends, this is a serious thing. Not all of you should desire to be teachers. Not all of you should desire to work this closely and especially and to be this responsible for words because words are a dangerous thing. You can you can do great benefit and uh, do great good with your words and with your teaching, but you can do incredible harm. And friends, I, I look around in the landscape of our churches and I hear some of the teaching that is being vomited upon God's people. And, and to some degree, I'm bewildered because if people would call those men to account and hold them accountable for their ridiculous teachings according to the Scripture if they didn't just blindly sit under them and listen to everything that they had to say, they would not be given a place to teach and to do so much harm. And, and, so, and so in some ways, we are responsible for the putting teachers in positions where they ought not be. And friends, even in our church, as much as I long to have a Sunday school program and to have faithful teachers among us, friends, I cannot stress to you enough, do not all desire to be teachers. Unless God has called and gifted you to the task of teaching his word, you should not be doing it. And you should only do it to that capacity that he's given you and in that context that he's given you. But I digress. His point is, friends, he begins the section about the importance of language and what it says about our hearts by reminding us that we are going to give an account for our words. And so I, that's enough to say about that. But I simply want to encourage you this morning, if you were to stand before God right now, and give an account for your language this morning. How ashamed would you be? The sharpness of, of our, I mean, the way that I have dealt with my wife and children and, and with you guys here this morning. Have I spoken with grace and love and kindness? Has my language reflected the gospel that I, that I, that I preach and that I love and that I've been changed by? 
Friends, if we were to stand before God and give an account today just of the things we've said up until 10 o'clock this morning, how ashamed would we be? Friends, let me remind you that we will give an account of all of our words. That our, that our speech is to be seasoned with salt, that it is to be used for good, that it is not to profane his name and his kingdom, and that it is to build other people up. So he calls us to remember, as with teachers, the strictness that is used in the judgment of words. But then in verse 2, he's going to tell us something else. Not only that we're going to give an account for our words, we must remember and acknowledge that the tongue is extremely powerful. So we must acknowledge the power of the tongue. Look at, verse, look at verses 2 through 6. He says, for we all stumble in many ways. I praise God for that little verse right there after, you know, after the first one and in this section. That in a discussion on language and the importance of our language and reminding me that I will give an account to God for my words, he is quick to remind us that we will all stumble in many ways. Ligon Duncan was speaking about this, Dr. Duncan from First Pres in Jackson and now over RTS, the seminary. He was speaking about this text and these verses, and he said, you know, let us be quick to remember that perfection is never the goal of the Christian life. Not in this life. Perfection is not the goal. Maturity is. Right? We will receive perfection one day. We will be made perfect and stood before God perfect one day. But in this life today, perfection is not the goal because perfection cannot be attained. We are called to maturity in Christ and growth in grace, putting sin to death and seasoning our language with salt. So he says, for we all stumble in many ways. And he says, notice what he says. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says in his language, he is a perfect man. Listen, let me just clarify real quickly. In light of the context, what he was just talking about at the end of chapter 2 about faith and works, it is best to understand these verses. What he's not saying is that if you can have good language, that you are somehow perfect without sin. He just got through saying all stumble, okay? What he's saying is that the person who can control their tongue, two things. Number one, it is evidence that they are a genuine Christian, and so in a righteous standing before God, in the sense of their righteousness by virtue of the imputed righteousness of Jesus, they are perfect before him. Right? They are a righteous person. They are a holy person before God. So it is evidence of the greater realities of the gospel in their life. But secondly, look at what he says, able also to bridle his whole body. They are helping to bring themselves to perfection one day. Why? Because, because what he's going to say down in just a few minutes, friends, is if you can tame your tongue, you can tame any part of your body. If you can control your tongue and not sin with regard to your speech, friends, then, then, then you can gain control over anything. That, that's, that's the sense, I think, of what he's saying here. So we all stumble in many ways, but if anyone does not stumble in what he says, and he bridles his tongue, he's a perfect man, able to bridle his whole body. Then look at what he says in verse 3. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole body as well. That's a powerful analogy. Then he says in verse 4, a second analogy, look at the ship also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder, wherever the will of the pilot directs. Another very strong analogy. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire, and the tongue is a fire. Friends, do you, do you see what he's referring to? The power of language. The power of your words to do good and to do evil, to harm and to build up. 
to lead in a right direction and to lead astray. Prince, think about the things that have been accomplished in world history by the use of language. Just a couple of weeks ago, I referenced Hitler, I think. As you realize with the spoken word, he led a nation of people to slaughter another nation. The power of the words that we have, the the ability that they possess. There is this great power. I mean, it's the same power. The two illustrations that he gives us are to show us that there is an inward power and an outward power. Look, look. If you look back, the two analogies about the horse and the ship, those speak to the effect of our words on us, the effect of our tongue on us, the power of our tongue to affect us. Why? It's like a bridle in a horse's mouth, that it directs the horse, this one little bit, that that it can direct him wherever he goes, the rudder of a ship, like the tongue is so small in comparison to the whole ship. But like our tongue, the entire ship is directed and is given its course and set on its course by the little bitty rudder in the back. You turn it just a bit and the whole ship turns. You pull on that bit just a bit and the whole large animal does exactly what you want it to do, at least most of the time, and that's the idea. So it's speaking about the ability of our tongues to impact and affect us. Friends, I will, I will tell you, if you think that your language and your words only have an effect on others, then you are deceived about the power of your own tongue. That it is the rudder of the ship. It is the bit in your mouth. Friends, and we must, we must fight. We, we must fight to be sure that our, that our mouths and that our words are leading us in a gospel direction. Friends, how can you be pursuing Jesus if you're never doing it with your lips? I mean, do you, do you see the problem? How can a life, how can a life of obedience and faith and love coexist with a mouth of hatred? It cannot. And so if we give over to the temptation to be critical and to be negative and to be demeaning and disrespectful and to profane God and his people and to put others down, friends, that is the direction that our life will take. And the converse is also true. The problem when those things are evident is because of the darkness that exists in our heart. Friends, a mouth of love and faith and obedience and lips that speak joy and salvation and gospel truths cannot flow out of a heart of darkness and bitterness. And the converse is true as well. So, so do not be deceived about the power of the tongue inwardly. It is like a rudder on a ship. It is like a bit in a horse's mouth. It is a very small, very small thing that has very great power. But he also gives us an analogy to speak about the outward power of the tongue. He uses the, the, the analogy of a fire. Look at what he says. The tongue is also like a fire, is it not? Verse 6, how great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire, that the tongue is like a fire. Not only does it direct us like a rudder does a ship, friends, our tongues and our words and our mouths can have a greater impact on others and on the world around us than you can ever imagine. I'm going to share with you a little story. I grew up here in Bayou Oaks around the corner, and at the time, the I live in Brighton Place now. If, if you're not familiar with this area, I apologize. There are two 
neighborhoods right beside each other. That's all you need to know. And I grew up in one, and I now live in the other. But when I was a young child, not that young, but growing up in the one, where, where Brighton Place now is was a large wooded area. And I remember being a kid, and I'm not 100% sure if I was responsible for it, but I think I was. We, were, we had forts built out in the woods. We would go out there and, and, you know, conquer the world, and we built our little forts, and we would spend time and hang out together, and we would occasionally build a little fire. And friends, all I'm going to tell you is one day about half of those woods burned down. I'm not 100% sure that I had something to do with it, but it would not surprise me at all. You know why? Because it doesn't take much fire to burn down a forest. Friends, that's what, that's what, he's, that's what he's saying about your tongue. You, you can't just say what you want to say and have language like you think is appropriate and, and be given to the sins of the desires of your own heart and think that it does not affect other people. Friends, people are maybe more affected by the things we say to them than any other thing in our life. Since I've become a parent, I've become keenly aware about the power of my words. When I became a husband, I became keenly aware in a way that I never had been before about the power of words. Friends, your words can destroy people. And if our language is destroying people, we're not going to be bringing them to the gospel. He tells us that we're going to give an account for our words, but he tells us that we must recognize and acknowledge the power of the tongue, that it has a, an inward power to direct and steer us, that it says something significant about our hearts, but it has an outward power as well, the effect that it has on others. Thirdly, not only should we acknowledge its power, friends, we should fear its power. Look at verses 7 and 8. He goes on to say that for every kind of beast and bird and reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. This fire is untamable. The rudder is unsteerable. The bit is unmovable. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. Friends, don't miss the simplicity of that language. You know what is, in my eyes, a restless evil and full of deadly poison? A cobra. And most of us don't play with them. And most of us are terrified of them. Friends, anything that is described like that is something that is intended to strike fear into us. And James's point, I think, here is to help us to see we're going to give an account to God for our words. And because of the power that they possess and because of our inability to tame it, we must be fearful of the tongue. Friends, we must, we must worry and concern ourselves about the things that we say, about the language that we use, about the effect that it has both on ourselves and on other people. The language, it's untamable. It's like a sin, you know, so many sins in our life that we think we can, we have full control over. I can, I can just use a little bit of, you know, just for the sake of humor, whatever, I can speak crudely and profanely, but I've got full control over that. It's untamable, he says. It's deceptive. Think about how Adam and Eve were deceived in the garden. Remember, it was by the deceptive words of the serpent as he confused them and brought them to a place of giving in to their temptation and sin, the deception of words. It is restless, the language that he uses here. It is a restless evil. It does not sleep or slumber. It does not stop. It is never off duty. 
Friends, it is an evil and a sin that is ever-present in each of us. You know why? Because we can speak at any moment. We are capable of hurling darts of wickedness at any second of the day. All we have to do is open our mouths, and we can just destroy. It is a restless evil, and it is full of deadly poison. Notice it's not full of dangerous poison. Friends, our words kill. Our language kills. It brings about utter destruction. So we acknowledge its power. We're fearful of its power. And then fourthly and finally, what does he say about our language in light of that, in light of that somber teaching? Here's what he says. He says, we will be exposed by our words. We will be exposed by our words. Look at, look at verses 9 through 12. With our words, we bless our Lord and Father. And with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. And, and see, his point is that's a problem. That's a hypocrisy. You've heard the term speaking out of both sides of your mouth. James just used it. Okay? That, that with the same mouth, we speak with love and honor and reverence and respect for God. And we speak with profanity and disrespect and disdain for God's people. And, and for those who are made in his likeness and in his image, and those two things are incompatible with one another. Look at what he says then in verse 10. For from the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, this ought not to be so. It's not just a recommendation. It's a commentary on the reality that this is not supposed to be so. That if this is so, it is evidence of a deeper problem in your life. Do you see what he's saying? Not, he's not just encouraging, ah, oh, you shouldn't do that. He's saying it cannot be the case. And if it is the case, there is a deep problem, a deep-seated reality that is a problem. So verse 11, does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? No. Can a fig tree bear olives? No. Why? Because it's a fig tree. That's a pretty basic illustration. It produces figs only. Or a grapevine, can it produce figs? No. Do you see what he's saying? He's, he's encouraging them. You're going to give an account for your words and for rightly understanding the power of your words and for having a healthy fear of your words and using them in the way they've been intended to be used because ultimately your words expose what kind of tree you are. Ultimately your words tell something significant about your heart. Friends, you see what he's saying in light of chapters 1 and 2? That there are those who claim to be Christians and are not. That there are those who profess to have a faith and it is an empty faith. It is not a faith that is working in love. It is not a faith that is saving. It is dead, <coughs> dead faith. And then there are Christians who have a saving faith in Jesus. And who live lives of obedience that vindicate the faith that they have and prove them to be true believers, having experienced genuine transformation by the Spirit of God. Do you see what he's saying? You can look at your words and you can know which you are. That the reality of your relationship with Jesus can be seen in your language. Friends, that's a, that's a terrifying reality. 
I don't know what sort of response, you know, you've had to this sermon. You know, you're, you're thinking, can my words be sinful? I mean, yes, they can be. Well, what makes a, a certain grouping of four letters sin? Friends, I, just a few questions. Are you speaking the words of God that he's given us here? Those are never sinful. Those are always good. Spoken in love. Do we speak God's words after him? Do your words help in your faith? Do they remind you of the goodness of God in your life, or are they negative and spiteful? Do they cause you to fret and fear? Do your words build up others and bring them to a knowledge of gospel truths? Do your words harm others? Do they harm yourself? Do your words cause others around you to question your relationship with Jesus? Friends, do your words, if you're honest, cause you to question your relationship with Jesus? If our words are an external expression of what is in our hearts, do your words reveal a heart of love for God and for his people and for the lost around you? Friends, I confess to you that often mine do not. And so I don't know what sort of response you've had to this sermon and to this text this morning. You know, maybe maybe you've been convicted about the sinfulness of your words and of your language, as have I. And so let me encourage you, the power that Jesus expressed in giving speech to the dumb is the same power that can cleanse the speech of the wicked. Let us repent and turn to Christ and put sin to death in our life and fight for holiness in our speech. That's one, that, that's one response. Friends, you may be sitting here this morning and listening carefully and under the conviction of the Holy Spirit, maybe you're coming to the reality that potentially your life has proved you to be an unbeliever, that, that you don't have love, loving, exalting, God-honoring language because you do not have a loving, exalting, and God-honoring heart, and that you've never been made new and you've never been brought into union with Christ. Friends, the, the answer is the same. Turn to Jesus. He can... He can take your darkened heart and, and, and take you out of the darkness and he can bring you into the light of the gospel and he can put in you a heart of flesh that's able to be matured and molded and changed and he can give you speech that builds up and doesn't tear down. Friends, all that's necessary for that to happen is faith in Christ, genuine faith to believe in him that is followed by a life of obedience, that is characterized and that is vindicated by the lives that we lead, and the holiness we find there. Friends, my encouragement to you today is whatever your response is, that as the Lord convicts and leads, that you would be quick to repent and to turn to Jesus. Let's pray. Our God in heaven, thank you for this text, as difficult as it is, and as convicting as it is upon us to, to show us the power of our words and the sinfulness of our language. God, I do pray that you would show us where we speak inappropriately and that you would help us to repent of those things and to turn to Christ and to trust in his redeeming and recreating power. God, I pray that we would not be led astray by our tongues, that we would not be given to the temptation to that is present there. And, and Father, I pray that, that others would not be led astray by our tongues, 
that they would be brought to Christ and not pressed far from him. Father, help us to, to season our speech with salt and God, to take the truth to those around us in love and grace. God, that we would press them to understand who Jesus is and what he's done for them and God, that, that the truth of the gospel would be reflective in the way that we speak to them. Father, help us to glorify you with our speech because apart from you, we can do nothing. And, and so we ask you to do this for us, that your kingdom would be built and that your people would be edified. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.